This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. Actually, Brock Long last week said, CERT on steroids, you know, um, how can we get a civil defense system back like we had in the 50s and get people involved and get citizens trained in the skills they would need. This is exactly what you would be doing in setting up a town level civil defense organization as a nonprofit. Hi, and welcome to Eam Weekly. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe. And this week, we're talking to Michael Maybe. He's a new contributor to Ian Weekly as well. About his book and program to bring back the idea of civil defense program, like the one we had in the 1950s. This interview comes on the heels of the interview with Brock Long and his vision of revamping Citizen Corps. Well, what is civil defense? Well, civil defense was a program that's a predecessor to our profession of emergency management, and it really focused on nuclear preparedness and community preparedness, and that's the concept. The community preparedness side is a concept of what Michael maybe wants to do with the idea of revamping or rebooting the uh, civil defense program. I think you're going to find this interview really interesting and refreshing and some ideas that we can pull out of it. And, you know, Citizen Corps does have some flaws in it. Like anything else, it's it's heading in the right direction. And I think I agree with Brock Long with the idea of revamping the uh, Citizen Corps program and making it more robust and down to the community level. So the question that we got in this week is how old is emergency management? And it's kind of a tricky question because, I mean, if you think about it, it's been around since the civil defense era. But however, the the idea of the modern emergency management program, the way we know it today, is only a little over 40 years old. It was established with the Stafford Act in 1974. And that's what created what we do now today as emergency managers. And so, yeah, so it's a really young um, and up and coming profession. If you have any questions about emergency management in general uh, or programs or, or anything like that, reach out to us at asktodd.emweekly.com. And, you know, if I don't know the answer, we're going to find it out for you. Also, if you're interested, check us out at our Facebook. We have a page and a group. The group is a lot of fun. We ask a lot of questions back and forth in there as well. There's a lot of great people who are involved in the group, a lot of knowledge in there. So if you can't find it uh, elsewhere, come to the Facebook group, the Ian Weekly group, and uh, yeah, I'd love to have you. Also on LinkedIn, we have our company page. I'd love you to uh, sign up there as well. Or you can also find my personal page there at Todd DeVoe, and we'd love to link with you on LinkedIn. Also, we're on Twitter. Of course, we're on Instagram. And we're also, you know, out there trying to spread the word of emergency management, and we'd love you guys to spread our word as well. So come on over and join us on our social media as well. So let's get into the interview with Michael Maybe. I'm happy to have uh, Michael Maybe here and we're going to be discussing civil defense, uh, kind of the old-fashioned way, the way EM started. And it's kind of kind of cool because we're coming on the heels of a couple conversations that we've been having on this topic. One was the Brock Long conversation that we had and then also with Garrett from Raven Rock about the continuity government came into play, all about nuclear preparedness. And in today's age, especially with what happened in Hawaii and what's, what's going on with North Korea, we're going to have a conversation about civil defense and how we can help prepare our communities in an old-fashioned way. So, Michael Maybe, welcome to EM Weekly. 
I thank you very much for having me, Todd. It's a great honor. So, Michael, tell me, how did you get involved in this field of emergency management and specifically the, your passion for the civil defense type of community preparedness? My background is mostly kind of on the response side. I was uh, an EMT, paramedic, and police officer uh, full-time. I've also, with the military, uh, been through two uh, combat deployments to Iraq, as well as two humanitarian mis- missions uh, to Guatemala after uh, Hurricane Mitch. And a lot of people don't really remember Hurricane Mitch, but you know it affected Central America and not, not so much the United States. But, you know, Hurricane Mitch hit Guatemala a couple years after they had just gotten out of a decades-long civil war, and it visited destruction and suffering upon this country to a scale that you just can't possibly imagine um, unless you've seen it. And I uh, got an opportunity, you know, both in Guatemala and Iraq to see, you know, kind of what the wholesale destruction of a country looks like and, and what suffering really looks like from you know, various disasters, wars. And then, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit. um, I was a federal employee working at the World Trade Center on 9-11. So I was, uh, you know, uh, on 9-11 at my desk when uh, the attack took place and then spent a great deal of time after that as, you know, one of the many federal employees down there uh, as part of the response. So basically all of this, when you put it together, um, I've had a great deal of experience both in the United States and outside of the United States seeing what the world looks like when things go wrong. As that's unfolding, there's the great uh, Northeast blackout of 2003 and then an ice storm in 2011 that knocked out the power to millions of people up here in the Northeast. And I really started thinking a lot about the vulnerability of the U.S. power grid and started doing a lot of research on that. And what I came to find out is that for decades, Congress has been talking about the vulnerability of the power grid. That's what really started me thinking about civil defense was, you know, the possibility of a national scale disaster in the United States and, you know, kind of how woefully unprepared we are for, you know, a national scale disaster. My experience with a region power outage, I'm happy a few years ago myself, when there was a power outage that started in Arizona and it's trickled down and it basically dominoed into California. And that's when I really learned how fragile our power system really is, talking to, at the time, the Southern California Edison guys uh, regarding uh, what it is to be shutting down power on purpose to try to put firewalls up and that if that firewall didn't hold we could have possibly lost the western seaboard like the eastern seaboard went down a couple years prior to that and i think we forget here in the united states how fragile the power system really is and you know and your book really kind of lays that out oh did we mention that you have a book yeah your book kind of lays that out about how fragile the power system is and how not only just citizens but cities aren't prepared for long-term power outage if something like that goes through and in fact you know not not just that but at all levels we're unprepared we're unprepared on the federal level the state level and the local level for a you know nationwide uh, grid outage and, you know, as we've seen from some of the past ones, so, you know, if we look like I was just talking about the Great Northeast Blackout of 2003, that one's kind of interesting because it started out so innocuously, literally from some untrimmed foliage in Ohio that caused basically this cascading series of events 
um, you know, mechanical failure, human failure, computer failure, whatever it was. But the end result was you start out with something innocuous like untrimmed foliage in Ohio and 55 million people in the U.S. and Canada end up without power in this cascading failure. And then, you know, when you look at and, so, you know, so, some people don't really pay too much attention to what goes on in other countries. But, you know, we've also seen in uh, Quebec in 1989, province of Quebec lost power for a period of time due to a solar storm, due to a geomagnetic disturbance. And you, there's a 100 percent possibility that the Earth will be visited by solar storms in the future. And, you know, in fact, quite large solar storms were, were overdue for, you know, those can have a catastrophic effect on the grid. And, you know, even in Ukraine in 2015, 2016, power grid in Ukraine taken down by cyber attacks, you know, which were believed to have originated from Russia. But uh, no matter the origin, we know for a fact that the United States power grid is also vulnerable to cyber attack, you know, has actually been penetrated by state and non-state actors um, on the cyber side. So, you know, we have a lot of threats to the power grid. And that is, you know, kind of the focus of what I talk about in the book is the worst case scenario, you know, where we have a national scale disaster, uh, where, you know, a, a town finds itself without uh, the availability of outside resources that we're kind of used to. Garrett Graff in his book, Raven Rock, talks about how by accident, realistically, that the United States figured out that there really is an EMP that could occur from nuclear blasts. Then they started preparing for the potential for that being a, a real possibility. And I know sometimes you hear people talking heads on TV kind of poo-poo the fact that North Korea could possibly do this. But I think that we should always be prepared for that. What do you think about the possibility of that EMP attack strike rather than just a typical traditional nuclear strike on the United States? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what uh, you, know, you were talking about uh, from the, the Raven Rock book, we first kind of became aware of the phenomenon of EMP in the early 60s when we did some uh, high altitude nuclear tests in the Pacific. And uh, particularly, there was one called Starfish Prime, where um, approximately 900 miles from Hawaii, we detonated a nuclear bomb in the air. And, you know, it was uh, effects of this were observed in Hawaii over 900 miles away. Now, remember back in the early 60s, uh, we were nowhere near as wired as we are now. I mean, um, you know, we didn't have the solid state electronics. We didn't have, you know, basically electronics running everything, you know, the, you know, the way we do now. So, you know, fast forward to the last two decades, and actually the military has prepared somewhat at least for the phenomena of EMP. But the civilian power grid is completely unprepared and unhardened. Congress started looking into this about two decades ago, and um, up on my website, for anybody who's interested in looking at some of the research materials, there are just reams and reams, thousands and thousands of pages of federal reports, congressional hearings talking about threats to the grid, including EMP. Now, the thing about North Korea, or terrorists for that matter, is an EMP weapon is not particularly difficult. So I've heard a lot of the talking heads talking about North Korea's nuclear capabilities. And, you know, one of the comments is, well, they don't have a good reentry vehicle for a nuclear bomb. 
you don't really need one. For an EMP, you're exploding it in space. So all you got to do is get something up into space with a nuclear bomb. And, and, and you know, that's technologically where you need to be. You don't need it to re-enter into the atmosphere the way with a conventional ground burst nuclear weapon you, you would need to. Uh, the other thing is we also have to worry about terrorists. I mean, we were completely surprised by 9-11. Uh, nobody had any idea that something like that could happen. We also don't know at what point it's possible that a terrorist could get a hold of a small nuclear weapon. If you fire a nuclear weapon from a Scud missile, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico or off the coast of California from a container ship, you could also create an EMP, which could have a devastating effect on the U.S. power grid. So in my mind, the threat of an EMP, whether from a nuclear weapon or from a geomagnetic disturbance like a solar storm, really is an existential threat to the United States that we ignore at our own peril uh, because there are you know, countries capable of doing this. And of course, the sun is capable of doing this. So it's something that we need to be prepared for. We need to be thinking about uh, because the consequences of not preparing for it are uh, horrible. Um, you know, according to some of the estimates in the congressional documents, you're talking about tens of millions of people in the United States who could die from the loss of the power grid for any period of time. Yeah, that's been proven uh, a few times here, specifically with some of our storms, right? I mean, if you think about Katrina, there's a book that I just uh, bought, the, uh, sorry, Five Days at Memorial, uh, talking about the about Katrina. So yeah, so I mean, we know that power outages can lead to death and not only that, just disease that can occur. I mean, it, it screws up our, our the ability for us to move water and for sewage out of the areas. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens when power goes down. So it's funny that people, even in our in our industry, will um, dismiss the idea of a large-scale power outage. I think it's the whole normalcy bias that's sitting on top of that, that we go, oh, every day we can turn the flip the switch and it goes on. But if you've ever served overseas and you've been into countries that are fairly modern, even like uh, Kuwait. There are areas of Kuwait that do not have regular power coming in because they just don't have the distribution system uh, set up. So it could happen here regarding uh, just an EMP or like you said, a solar flare or just a, a cyber attack. Those things are where we get, we are kind of vulnerable in those areas right there. How do you think we can get more professionals to be concerned about, about this cause? I know that William Forsham in his book, um, one second after and his series that he has on there, I spoke to him. I had an interview with him um, a few months ago. And, you know, that was one of the things that he was trying to get out is to to the professionals, to Congress, to planners about how weak our power system is. But it seems like this is one of those um, areas that gets dismissed. What do you think we can do as a profession to get people to get behind planning and or hardening our power system here in the United States? Uh, great questions. And there's actually... There are kind of two aspects to this, and um, General Ken Krosniak, you know, who is part of the Secure the Grid Coalition, likes to refer to it as kind of the strategic and then the tactical. So for those in the military, you know, you'll, you'll understand those terms. But the strategic or the big picture is getting Congress to enact legislation to harden the electric grid to, you know, prevent something like this from happening, holding, you know, federal agencies accountable for enforcing any existing rules and laws to make sure that uh, the power grid uh, is protected. Then at the tactical level, and this is where we're talking about at the towns, the emergency manager in charge of a particular town and the citizens and the government of a local town. 
And Brock Long has talked a lot about this uh, recently in his testimony to Congress on November 30th, as well as in your interview with him. He talked about the need to bring uh, pre-disaster mitigation back down to the local level. So let's take a look at, for example, Katrina and Maria. And these are both horrible disasters by all accounts. I don't think anybody will argue that. But now I'll say something controversial. The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. The modern emergency manager wears lots of hats. So how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It's just a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. Pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises are what they offer. Spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations and more. Exercises come from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jump start on your exercise program today and visit TTX Vault at www.ttxvault.com. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple to use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. back from that break and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors without them we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have so check them out and let them know that you came from em weekly let's continue the interview for example katrina and maria and these are both horrible disasters by all accounts i don't think anybody will argue that but now i'll say something controversial katrina and maria are both best case scenarios and the reason they're best case scenarios is because we had massive federal resources, resources from other states that we could bring to bear in these disasters. So, you know, in Maria, FEMA was there before the, the storm even hit. And, you know, we bringing massive resources in. And still, you know, to this day, I was just looking and I believe we're still at about 450,000 people without power in Puerto Rico almost four months later. So, and you know, it's a best case scenario because we have the ability to bring in all these resources. Now in a national scale disaster, and this is the fatal flaw of our emergency management system. It works very well for disaster we've, disasters we've seen in the past. 
tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, things that are local or regional in scale, where you've got the ability to bring in outside resources from elsewhere in the country. You know, where this is going to fail us and where we have to think outside of the box is a national scale disaster. So right now, pretty much every local government, every citizen, every emergency manager is thinking, well, if the disaster overwhelms our local resources, we can call in state, you know, our surrounding towns, mutual aid. We can call in for state. We can call in for federal. And that's kind of how we're wired. And, you know, it's the way I was always wired uh, in the uh, emergency responses. You know, if it's too big for local resources, you can scale up. You can call in for outside resources. Here's the problem and where we have to think outside of the box. There are 35,000 towns and cities in the United States. And if the disaster area is in substantially all of them, you know, with a loss of the electric grid, let's say cyber attack, solar flare, EMP, whatever it is, a cascading failure for, you know, any number of reasons, if substantially the entire United States is the disaster area, then where are you going to bring in outside resources? There's no way that FEMA can helicopter in MREs and water to 35,000 towns and cities in the United States. So... Survival will be a local issue. You'll be on your own, just your local government, whatever you have in your town at that time, that's what you're going to have to work with. Now, that's a huge problem if you don't think about it ahead of time, but there's a lot you can do if you do think about it ahead of time to mitigate the loss of life and to be prepared you know, for your, your town and your citizens uh, you know, to survive a worst case scenario. But much of it needs to be thought of and planned for ahead of time. You really can't. And I love that you mentioned, um, you know, Bill Fortune's book, uh, One Second After. That's a ta- it's a great book. And, and for anybody who hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. It's, you know, one of the books that, that really, uh, you know, really has had an effect on my thinking. And, you know, it's the story of a town when the power goes out long term and, you know, what they do. This town had a lot of advantages that many other towns don't have. So, you know, if you think about kind of where you are, your jurisdiction, and what problems you would have if the power went out for a long period of time, weeks or months, what power your citizens would have. Um, I'm up here in the great state of New Hampshire, and we just recently had some of the coldest weather I can remember in a long time. You know, we had uh, sub-zero weather, you know, with, with wind chill. If the power had been out during the winter up here in New England, you're just seconds away from a humanitarian crisis because uh, people's houses nowadays are dependent upon power for heat. You know, not everybody's got a fireplace or a wood-burning stove. Nobody, as you said, everybody, you know, expects when you flip the switch, the lights are going to go on or the power is going to go on. We just take that for granted. You know, we're generations and generations removed from adversity or, you know, kind of the need to uh, the need to live without power. And very few people in the United States, you know, right now have the ability to be able to do that. We're completely tied into the electric grid for all of our critical infrastructures. And you touched on this a little bit. You know, if the power goes out nationwide for a long period of time, you immediately lose all of the other critical infrastructures that are dependent upon power. You lose your water, whether it's city water or well water, your backup generators only have so much you know, time, and then everybody loses water. You lose sewer, you lose sanitation. 
uh, just look at what happened in the medical system during Katrina, you know, and just extrapolate that out to a nationwide outage, you know, you have a collapse of the medical system. You have the inability to uh, bring food or fuel. The transportation infrastructure falls apart. You have the in- inability to bring food or fuel to these 35,000 towns and cities in the United States. So everybody run, if your generator is still working, you, you quickly run out of fuel. Now you've got people without food, without water, without fuel. People start dying of starvation. They start dying of waterborne diseases. Uh, you get a breakdown in law and order. Just you know, look at the 1977 blackout in New York City or look at Hurricane Andrew, for examples, or Katrina, for that matter, for examples of, you know, kind of what happens to law and order during a disaster. And now, you know, look at this as a national scale disaster. And, you know, in many small towns, you may have only a few police officers in the town. And, you know, those few police officers, you know, might during normal times uh, be sufficient to cover the town. And you can always call for mutual aid. But in a national scale disaster, you know, quickly you find that you can't control looting. You can't control, you know, people who once they're starving, you know, may do the wrong things and break into their neighbor's houses. So all of these things we can predict what the effects would be. I think one of the problems is we don't always think about it. We don't have tabletop exercises where this is the scenario, you know, your, your town's on its own and there are no outside resources available. So that's, you know, one of the things I talk quite a bit about in the book is, you know, what are the effects? What things would we need to plan for? And, you know, what are some things that we could do ahead of time to mitigate starvation, to mitigate uh, diseases, to, to help stand up a good medical system in a town uh, where you might not even have a hospital in your town right now, but you're certainly going to need one, you know, if there's a long-term a disaster. So, the, you know, this is kind of what my uh, book talks about is how at the town level you can build a civil defense system. And, you know, the, I guess let me say right ahead of time, one of the most common kind of objections, if you will, that, that I hear from emergency managers is, well, we don't have a budget for that. You know, if FEMA wants us to do pre-disaster mitigation at the local level, you know, then there's got to be funding, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm not arguing that point, but what I am saying is a civil defense organization set up in a town as a nonprofit is not coming out of the, the town's emergency management or emergency preparedness budget. This concept of having a nonprofit civil defense organization, uh, such as many fire departments and ambulances are set up, uh, in this structure. Uh, this would be an organization, uh, and actually Brock Long last week said, CERT on steroids, you know, um, how can we get a civil defense system back like we had in the 50s and get people involved and get citizens trained in the skills they would need? This is exactly what you would be doing in setting up a town-level civil defense organization as a nonprofit. And it's kind of one of the solutions I see to the present problem we have right now, which is a complete lack of public engagement and emergency preparedness. I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that we talk about here is, you know, CERT programs. And there are CERT programs out here. I know in California, I think it's Redondo Beach or Manhattan Beach, one of those two. Their CERT program is actually a 501c3 where they raise money uh, for their program themselves, independent of the city. 
Yeah, as I say, some of the cities have issue with that because they fear a lack of control of those groups. But I think it's a good model to take a look at. What do you think about that? I absolutely think that's a great model. And I uh, also uh, have been involved in CERT myself, as I know you have. I'm, I'm a believer in the CERT program. But uh, CERT in and of itself has largely been viewed, I think, a lot of times as a response force, not necessarily, you know, pre-disaster mitigation force. You know, uh, it, it hasn't necessarily been looked at something, you know, to go around and help get the communities more prepared. And I think some CERT teams do this and do it very well, but the personality of CERT teams varies, you know, from, from town to town. But, you know, one thing to think about is, you know, whether it's a CERT team or a nonprofit civil defense organization, this is a resource multiplier. And, and so emergency managers think about this for a minute. So you've got this, you know, paltry little emergency management budget in your town. And, you know, you could always use more money. We all, all certainly could. But let's think about the resources that you actually have. So in your town right now, you've got doctors, nurses, paramedics, you have engineers, you have mechanics, you have plumbers, you have electricians, you have construction workers, you have people with all of these various um, fields of expertise that you would need if your town was on its own and, and your town was in a pickle. You've got all of these resources and they're in your town right now and they're watching America's Most Wanted or, you know, whatever they're doing, we need to find a way to channel these resources and we need to um, find a way to organize them. And what civil defense is, if we kind of go back to the definition, is the civil defense is the organization and training of civilians to play a part in, in a town's uh, disaster uh, preparedness and survival. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was thought of in the context of, you know, kind of the um, Cold War and possible nuclear strike. But this works for all hazards. You know, what, no matter where you live in the country, if you're worried about flooding, if you're worried about tornadoes, if you're worried about hurricanes, and we all should be worried about, you know, the vulnerability of the electric grid. If we prepare for this worst case scenario, we prepare for this loss of the electric grid and, you know, kind of the worst possible thing that can happen. The ancillary effect is we're prepared for anything. We're prepared for a minor regional power outage. We're prepared for a hurricane. We're prepared for a tornado, an earthquake. All of the steps are essentially the same. It's getting people organized, trained, and involved. And that's where I think we've really failed over the last numerous years, you know, is in engaging the public and getting them interested and involved. And I believe civil defense and, you know, CERT has done that, you know, in places where, you know, CERT is believed in and CERT is uh, used. You know, you've got a lot of people, uh, regular citizens who volunteer their time and now they're very interested and hopefully they're talking to their neighbors, you know, about emergency preparedness. A civil defense organization accomplishes the same thing. It helps you as the town government find and channel these resources into your town's emergency preparedness. And if you're a citizen, it gives you a way to be involved. I mean, um, I don't know how many of us trust that Congress is going to someday come up with legislation to protect the electric grid. But even if they do, um, even if Congress tomorrow passes legislation that uh, offers some kind of comprehensive protection to the electric grids, it will be years and years and years before those can take effect. By the time you get through the rulemaking process, you know, go against all the objections of all of the electric utility companies and, you know, everybody who's who's not going to want additional regulations. 
it would be years before you could actually see the electric grid being meaningfully hardened. So in the meantime, what can citizens do? Down on this kind of town scale end, we can help prepare our towns. We can help prepare our neighbors and our, our communities to be prepared for worst case scenario. My philosophy here is that if you're preparing for the worst case scenario, the non other than worst case scenario becomes easy. And a good example of that is in my training here and bring being brought up in Orange County, California, where we had a nuclear power plant down the street from us, is we trained for that event where the nuclear power plant had a major incident and we would train for that every year or every two years realistically and then every four years I think it was a graded exercise from FEMA. But we, we trained for that. We could do that nuclear power plant. We had evacuation plans for the entire county if we needed to, and we knew how to exercise that. And it made fires and tsunami warnings and everyday, you know, large-scale earthquake, you know, well, it's everyday large-scale earthquake, but, you know, the idea of, a, of an earthquake, it made all those other ones easy to do. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. And I think, you know, I've heard this mantra before that let's prepare for the worst case scenario. Um, but unfortunately, we don't. And, you know, we've actually got basically two administrations of FEMA administrators who've said essentially the same thing that, you know, we're kind of we prepare for what we're capable of responding to. We prepare for things we've seen before. I mean, we've seen hurricanes, we've seen earthquakes. The problem is these are all regional disasters. You know, when have we actually tried to prepare for a national scale disaster? And so I think that we are not preparing for worst case scenario, but you're absolutely right. If we do, it makes everything else easy because it's much easier to scale down than to scale up. Right. You know, it's funny because, I mean, Dr. Kelly Victory, who I interviewed regarding actress shooter, you know, our new uh, sponsor, the Blue Cell with Todd Manns and his interview that I had with him. So, you know, uh, and in your other interviews I've done with Craig Fugate, Dr. Kelly Victory, for instance, on the actor shooter, she talks about training for that large scale incident for businesses and for cities. And that has proven to be useful in other other aspects of it. Todd Manns um, from the Blue Cell Group, the, uh, he's, a, he's our new sponsor, but he, his group talks about training for outside that comfort zone, you know, because pushing you to the edge, because we don't want to do exercise and, and training that we're comfortable with because we don't learn anything from that when we're not tested. And, and we're talking about it here again. This is the fourth or fifth time in, during these podcasts that we've talked about pushing your envelope, what your abilities are. I think what we've done in the disservice that we all want to show our city council members and our bosses that we are so prepared and ready to go and that we use easy exercises for our training. And we go through it and everybody looks great and everybody packs each other in the back. So oh, we did a great job and there's no lessons learned. And I think that we learn during exercises and training in failure more than we learn from successes. And I think that if we can push ourselves with something like a region-wide or national power outage, if we're prepared for that, we're going to be able to survive anything. You know, and I think that your book does a great job by step-by-step by, step by, by bringing that through. Yeah, I agree. And, and actually, um, I would even say, yeah, you know, I, I hope that we will do this on a national level at some time. I mean, there is, a, you know, an exercise called GridX, and I wrote about that in my blog, but most people have never even heard of it. So, you know, didn't necessarily do people much good down at the, uh, the town level. But, you know, what I would say is, you know, for every emergency manager who's in a town, a city, a county, kind of the, the local level, you want to kind of have your own 
tabletop exercise right now and just focus on what resources you have available right now and what would happen. It's very easy to anticipate what the problems would be. And, you know, uh, spoiler alert, the first time you do this, lots of people are going to die and you're going to, quote, fail the, the exercise. That's okay because that's where we do learn. We, we have to learn by failure, not by, you know, success and patting ourselves on the back. But we need to see where, you know, where did things go wrong? You know, we had lots of people die from waterborne diseases. Well, what could we do to mitigate that? You know, how could we get potable water out to everybody? So here's a problem we've identified and we can start working towards possible solutions. You know, we have people starving to death. Okay, what could we do ahead of time to mitigate this? What could we do, you know, for a medical system? But, but really the true value of this would be to do it at a town level, at a local level, a county level, you know, the, at the basically what, you know, Brock Long talks about that disasters are supposed to be, you know, federally supported, state, you know, um, run and locally executed. So at the local, at the execution level, if you can't rely on anything coming in, any outside resources, what can you do with what you have? And what would you need to do better? Those are the questions you want to ask. So I would definitely encourage everybody, you know, take take a look. And I've got, uh, you know, some real good examples, I think, in the book of some of the things that, that could go wrong, some of the things to consider. And it would be best to look at it now and start to work on pre-disaster mitigation than, you know, be stuck after the fact with a bad case of wishing I had thought about this ahead of time. Right. So we're getting here close to the end. There's a couple more questions I have for you. One is, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you um, or, you know, in your book and in your blog, how would they find you? Okay. You can find me most e- easily uh, at civildefensebook.com. So it's all one word, civildefensebook.com. Uh, that's my website. I have a blog up there. You can subscribe to my blog. There's also a contact page with my email and everything like that. So you can get in touch with me. If you don't remember the website, just Google my name, Michael, maybe, and uh, Civil Defense, and, and you'll find me. I'm, I'm up there. I, I, I do a lot of blogging about pre-disaster mitigation and civil defense. I'm on you know, most of the social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. But uh, come on up to my website, civildefensebook.com, and it'll also give you a link to where you can buy the book. The book is a hard copy. You can pick it up for $9.95 at Amazon, and the uh, Kindle version is $2.99. And as I said, um, it has a lot of good examples of things to think about at the local level. And I think that if you're trying to do what Brock Long is asking us to do and bring your pre-disaster mitigation down to the local level and you're wondering how to do it with the budget you have, this is the book for you. It gives you a lot of ideas of how you can do things, you know, at little or no cost. I think one of the things I like about your book as well is it's it's not just a, a textbook, if you will. It, it also has workbook abilities there. There's some uh, fill-in-the-blank areas where it makes you think about things, and, and you can really start your planning process using your book. So well done on that book, by the way. The toughest question of the day, and I know we've talked about a couple. What book or books or publication do you recommend for somebody who is more interested in learning about civil defense and you know power outages and those type of things? Um, there are actually a lot of great books on this, but one uh, one thing that if you're really interested in doing uh, tabletop exercises, there's a book by Charles Manto, M-A-N-T-O, from the InfraGuard EMP 
uh, special interest group that has a whole group of tabletop exercises that you can do. And you can get this on uh, Amazon if you go on Amazon and just look under Charles Manto. He's got an entire uh, volume of uh, tabletop exercises you can, you can use. Uh, there's also a great book called Apocalypse Unknown by uh, Peter Vincent Pry which talks a lot about the EMP threat, much more technical than mine. I'm not a tech guy. I'm kind of a, you know, a tactical, how can we make our town safer? You know, what can we think of at this end? Uh, Dr. Pry is actually a scientist, and he, he talks at great length about what the threats are and then what can happen to the in cascading uh, failures of the infrastructure. So that's a good background book as well people might be interested in. Thank you. Those are good solutions. I normally leave it at this, uh, you know, part of the interview and, and I kind of kind of go from here. But I want to ask her one more question for you. How do you think that we can, again, as professionals or people that are passionate about this, kind of push this idea of town civil defense like we had back in the day? What, what can we do to make this happen? We have to change our culture. And I've been uh, writing about this for a while. We kind of have this in-the-box thinking right now about uh, resources, about, you know, we consider resources to be a line item in a budget, and we consider that they fall like manna from above. We have to think outside of the box about the resources in our town, and we've got to be open to new ideas about how to make our town safer. Emergency managers and the town government cannot do it alone. We absolutely have to get our citizens involved in this. You know, there's there's no other way to do it. If you don't get your citizens involved, you're not going to be able to effectively have a civil defense system in your town. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to, to say to the emergency managers out there that are listening to the podcast? Uh, no, but I, you know, would like big shout out to Brock Long. You know, I uh, if you didn't listen to Todd's podcast from two weeks ago, it's uh, number 44. Please listen to what uh, you know the director's team is saying, because I think it's a very, very relevant message to us. Great. And again, everybody, if you want to find us, you know, if you're listening to us from other other sources, it's it's emweekly.com, and we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're out there. So uh, go ahead and find us, and love to have you, Michael. Again, thank you so much for being on here. Okay, great. Thank you for having me.